Aaron is back, um, a short, what, 40-hour journey yesterday. So um, if he looks tired, he's not. <clears throat> Just go up and, and welcome him back, say hi. Um, but Rob, thank you for your leadership over the last few weeks. Hey, um, if you have a Bible, you can open it up to John chapter 11. That's where we're going to be camping out this morning. It's great to see you. My name is Ryan Paulson, and I'm the lead pastor here. Uh, and we're grateful uh, that you are with us as we jump into the scriptures today. Have you ever w- wished that life had an eject button? I mean, just, you know, some of those conversations that you get into that get a little bit awkward. And you, if you had the eject button, you would just tap it and get out of there. Uh, the situations that you find yourself in where you're like, this is really just a little bit too awkward. It may have been somebody that cornered you out there just now. I'm not sure. <clears throat> I, I, there's been a few times in my life where, where I've wished that I had an eject button, an evacuate button with me. And, and one of them I remember vividly. It was a few years ago and uh, Kelly and I were living in San Diego and we had come back to Colorado to visit family uh, for Christmas. And because it was so freezing cold, we decided to go see a movie during Christmas time. Um, and so I think this was 2008. And you may have remembered this movie that was out. It was called Marley and Me. Well, it was billed as this sort of fun-filled family comedy, you know, with this family that gets this dog and the dog destroys the house and, and the previews make it look just hilarious. And so as a family, we went to go see Marley, to go see Marley and me. Now this is Kelly, myself, my mom, my dad, my brother, my sister, all of us grown adults. And we were sitting in this theater. And the writing is on the wall about halfway through. If, if you haven't seen it, this is a spoiler alert, but the statute of limitations is over. So don't, don't get upset. But as we were watching this, about halfway through, the writing's on the wall that this dog, who they're making me grow to love in the movie, is going to die. <clears throat> they shouldn't have called the movie Marley and Me. They should have called it Old Yeller too. And if you, if you've seen the movie about halfway through the writings on the wall and you're starting to go, oh no, I don't like where this is going at all. And as the dog gets sicker and sicker, you know it's not going to end with good old Marley running through a field. It's just not how the story's gonna end. And as the dog slowly, painfully dies over the course of the last third of this movie, I hear a woman behind me say, This isn't a kid's movie. And I wanted to turn around to her and say, lady, no, it's not. And I heard a girl a few rows back. This is a packed house movie theater say, Marley. Now, here's the deal. I have a yellow lab, so I have an excuse. But I'm sitting there in a public movie theater. And I look down to my left and I see my mom pulling for the Kleenex and she's crying. And I see my grandma sitting right next to her, and she's crying. And I look one seat down further, and I see my brother, who's also a grown man. And and he is crying. And I look one more seat down, and my dad is crying. And I think to myself, dear Lord, what have we done? Because I don't know about you men, but the men here, they'll resonate with this. There is no place that you would like to be less than in a public movie theater crying over a dog. And so I did the tough guy like, you know, like you walk out of there like, hey, nothing happened. 
You try, you just, you don't, the strategy at that point is you don't make eye contact with anyone until you get to that car. And I learned a valuable thing that day. I don't like awkward situations. In fact, in fact, I will avoid them at all costs. And you know what's interesting to me? Is that while I can't, I don't have that ability to avoid every single awkward situation because I don't know what's coming at me next. Jesus did have that ability. Jesus could have very easily avoided awkward conversations, awkward interactions, situations that he just really didn't feel like being around. He, he could have seen those things coming. And he could have hit the eject button very easily. But what I'm, what I'm just captivated by this week in studying John chapter 11 is that it's not only that Jesus doesn't avoid awkward conversations and awkward situations. It seems as though he chases after them. It seems as though he pursues them. And we're going to learn this morning, as we look at John chapter 11, we're going to learn that that Jesus is willing not only to just observe and willing to see uh, awkward situations, but he's willing to jump right into them for the explicit purpose of breathing compassion into the lives of people who are hurting. So here's a big question for us this morning. Are we willing to do the same? Or, or will we choose the path of comfort, the path of normalcy, and the path of, I really don't want to get out of my comfort zone to have that conversation, that interaction, because it's just going to be too awkward. Look at this. In John chapter 11, if you have a Bible, we're going to start in verse 28. And we're going to come back to the section where Jesus teaches about being the resurrection and being the life. But if you haven't been with us over the last few weeks, let me do a sort of Cliff Notes version to catch you up. Jesus has just gotten word that one of his good friends, Lazarus, is sick and has actually died. And so at the point of the story, we're picking up and now Jesus hears he's sick. Jesus waits two days. Jesus shows up late to this interaction with Mary and Martha, who are Lazarus's brother. And at this point in the story, Jesus is going to start to interact with both of them in verse 28. It says this, when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary. And this is, this is Martha who's saying this. Saying in private, the teacher, she's referring to Jesus, is here and he's calling for you. Isn't that great? I love that Jesus is not content to let us live in hiding. And here's the truth of the matter, friends, that there's some people here today where you are, you think you're hiding from God. And this morning, Jesus is going to say, hey, will you come out of hiding? It's just been been too long. And so Jesus says, or or Mary, uh, sorry, Martha reports to Mary, the teacher's calling for you. And when she heard this, she rose quickly to go and to meet him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. So Martha sort of ran outside of town, hearing that Jesus was coming, and she goes to meet him outside of the town. It says, when the Jews who were in her house with her, they were consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. 
Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. I mean, this is the this is the question in Mary's mind. As she's sitting back in her house, maybe feeling sorry for herself, maybe just in so much pain that she can't even get up. She hears Jesus' voice. She goes to meet him. And the first thing that she said to, says to him is, Jesus, if you'd been here, you could have done something. If you'd, if you'd shown up, Jesus, this might have gone a little bit differently. He may still be alive. And, and hey, if we're honest this morning, how many of us have that same type of question? Jesus, if you would only have shown up a little bit earlier, then this relationship wouldn't have gone that direction. Jesus, if you'd shown up just a little bit sooner, then my son or my daughter wouldn't have walked down that road. And it's these questions that just sort of eat at our souls, aren't they? That God, why didn't you show up when questions of life? I love that Jesus can handle those questions. I love that Jesus isn't afraid of those questions. I love that Jesus doesn't scold Mary for asking that question. Listen to what the way that Jesus responds. He says, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who'd come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Isn't it interesting that many of us in this room would ask that same question, God, where were you when? And I think that the world around us that doesn't believe in God and has a huge issue with us believing that Jesus is Lord, that's their question too. If your God is so powerful, where was he when? Fill in the blank. Right? I mean, that's the, that's the question. God, if you're powerful, if you're loving, then why? And notice Jesus' response. Notice Jesus' response, not only in this passage, but as we move through it, because what we're going to see is we're going to see a snapshot of the heart of God and a way that God responds to evil and suffering and pain in the world. But look at verse 33. Look at what it says. It says, when Jesus, what? Saw her. Oh, man. I love it. I love it that we have a God that in the midst of trial, in the midst of hardship, in the midst of pain, doesn't look past us, but looks right at us. That no matter what we're going through this morning, as we walk through these doors, and as many people as are in here are different things going on, you can rest assured this morning that the God of the universe, Jesus Christ, He sees you. And if we're going to be a people of God who, who bring forth the kingdom of God into a world that desperately needs it, we need to be that same type of people. We need to carry this compassion into the world around us. And, and one of the things, as we observe Jesus, we see that he does, is that Jesus doesn't only see the problem, he sees the people. Jesus doesn't only see the problem, he sees the people. And the truth of the matter is, is that problems rarely move us. People move us. See, statistics don't touch your heart as much as stories touch your heart. 
See, I can share with you a ton of statistics. I mean, I've shared this one before, but there's, there's 27 million slaves today in, in the world. The, the sex slavery alone is a $31 billion industry on our globe. There are 1 billion people in the world right now who don't have access to clean water. That's about a sixth of the world's population. 2.5 billion people, about somewhere around 40% of our population, have zero access to any sort of improved sanitation. I mean, that's astounding. There's more than 200 million Christians, followers of Jesus today, in 60 different countries who are persecuted solely because of their faith. I mean, that's, that's huge, isn't it? But you'll notice that when someone like Compassion comes, they don't just throw up the statistics. What do they do? They show you a picture. I can remember uh, uh, Kelly had um, adopted Paola Elizabeth Espinosa from Ecuador back in the day. Why? Because we saw her picture and we, we fell in love with her. It's why um, when you watch like uh, TV late at night and you see Sarah McGaughan come on and talk to you about killing animals and how we shouldn't do that, you know, <clears throat> she always is sitting on like a white couch with a puppy that she's petting, you know, that you could adopt. There's a reason for that. It's because they want you to connect because we connect with stories we don't connect as much with statistics on a heart level. And I think what, if you and I are going to be followers of Jesus who carry his compassion into the world, we need to retrain our eyes to see the people around us. As I was thinking about this this week, and I'm just going to be, I'm going to have a few moments of complete, total honesty with you. I tried to think through ways that I have trained myself to really not see people. Because if I don't see them, I, ha- I, don't have to, I don't have to interact with them. And if I don't have to interact with them, I don't have to breathe hope. And if I can just walk past them, then my life is a whole lot easier. Here's the first way I don't see people. The first reason I don't see people. I don't have the time. This is what I tell myself. I don't have the time. I mean, you think Jesus is on a mission here. The guy lives 33 years. He does public ministry for three years. Does he have any time? I mean, the guy should have been the busiest man on the face of the planet. And yet, somehow, some way, he always seems to have time, time for these huge interruptions to his day and his mission and his plan. I mean, he was doing something when Mary and Martha called him. And yet he shows up. Are we the type of people, let me ask this, are we the type of people who are willing to embrace the mission of God in such a way that we're willing to interrupt our day? And and sometimes I am, and and I'll just be honest with you, sometimes I'm not. Sometimes I'm not. Look at the way that this passage in the book of Matthew talks about Jesus and his ability to see people and have time. It says, when Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Busy guy. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. 
Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. See, it all starts with Jesus not just seeing the crowd and and observing the people. He sees the people in the crowd. And he sees right to their heart. And I wonder if it's time for the church to just stop praying, verse 38. Jesus, send out more laborers. In fact, I think it is. I think it's time for us to start, stop praying, verse 38, and start being the answer to the prayer in verse 38. There's a big difference. There's a big difference for us to say, Lord, please send out laborers into the harvest. And there's a difference in saying, Lord, send me. Send me. But hey, it may just cost us a little bit of time. It may cost us some time in our day. But I love that Jesus always had time. And he always had time for people that the rest of the world said, you shouldn't have time for. That's one. Two, in brutal honesty, I label people instead of seeing their humanity. I label people instead of seeing their humanity. So... Instead of seeing a person, I see somebody who's homeless. That's easier. That's easier. I see somebody who's sick. I see somebody who's mentally ill. Instead of seeing a soul, instead of seeing a person, what I love about Jesus and what I want to emulate so badly is that he didn't define people based on their circumstances. Their value was not tied to what they could give or what they could bring. Their value was tied directly to the fact that they were created by the God of the universe and loved directly by him. And man, I want to get so badly past the labels that I so easily attach to people to really see them. Three, I project myself onto other people. I think, hey, if I'm doing well, then everybody else must be doing well too. If I'm having a good day, then everybody else must be having a good day too. I was having a conversation with my dad just earlier this week and he said, you know what, Ryan, I, I, I drive down the street a little bit differently now because of what's going on with mom. And I said, well, what do you mean, dad? And he said, we, we had it so easy for so long that I never imagined that anybody else was really hurting. I knew they were, but it just never caught my heart. And he said, now when I drive down even our street, I just wonder what's going on in each of these houses, in each of these hearts, in each of these people. What kind of, what kind of pain are they carrying? But it's easy to project myself onto others and just think, hey, they're just like me. They're just like me. Fourth, we blame people for the circumstances that they're in. So, hey, whatever, whatever happened, whatever detours happened in life, it's because they made a bad decision. And as I thought about myself this week, the reason I do that, and this is just honest, is so that I don't have to do anything. That's the reason I think that. So that I don't have to engage. If I can blame someone, that's a whole lot easier than loving someone. But I love that Jesus doesn't do any of this. He sees her. And he doesn't just give her this like theological answer. He sees her and he weeps and he's deeply moved. Did you know that the gospel has the ability to give us new eyes? 
The gospel has the ability to give us new eyes. And, and in fact, Paul writes about this. Uh, Mother Teresa is awesome. Okay. Paul writes about this and he says this in verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. The NIV says, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. The love of God transforms the way that we see people, the way that we interact with people. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, Paul writes, we regard him thus no longer. See, the gospel, when it gets in us, starts to transform the way that we see and we really get the ability to see people, to engage with people, to to fight through the natural tendencies we have to just categorize people. And really enter in and see them. I wonder how many people in our lives have just sort of become part of the landscape. Have just become part of the landscape. They don't, they don't touch our hearts anymore. For any variety of reasons. I love that Jesus says, no, I am not the platonic unmoved mover God. I am in this with you and I see you and I see you in your pain in your hurt in your joy I see you he goes on Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who come with her also weeping he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled and he said now see here's the point at which I and maybe you would be tempted to say, <clears throat> all right, hey, oh, look at what time it is. All right, I'm out of here. All this crying is getting a little awkward. These feelings that you're wearing on your sleeve. I don't know if I really want to be a part of that. This is getting a little bit weird. And so I'm just going to go. And Jesus says, let's move a little bit deeper. Let's move a little bit forward. Come on, let's push in rather than push out. He doesn't hit the eject button. He says, where have you laid him And they say to him, Lord, come and see. He's fearless. He's fearless. He says there's no situation too awkward. There's no situation too dead. There's no situation too hopeless for me to not show up in. And hey, if we're going to be the type of people who carry the compassion of God into the world around us, we need to see that Jesus refuses to step into the mess and he steps around the mess, sorry, and he steps right into it. As I read that this week, I just thought, I don't know that I would have gone. I don't know that I would have gone if I could snap my fingers and say, Hey, Lazarus, why don't you wake up? Right? I mean, you you know that Jesus didn't need to be there to raise Lazarus from the dead. He doesn't need to go there. He doesn't need to, to show up. He doesn't need to take the walk into the city. In fact, when they come to him and deliver the message, hey, Lazarus is sick, Lazarus is dying, he could have just yelled, hey, Lazarus, wake up! And Lazarus would have walked right out of that tomb. See, why does Jesus show up? Why does, why does he decide to go when it would be easier to stay? Because he could have healed him from a distance. Uh, here, here's why. 
Because what Jesus realizes is that his presence is just as important as his work. See, he could have done his work from a distance, but he couldn't have been a comfort from a distance. He couldn't have walked with them from a distance. He couldn't have provided what they may have needed more than even Lazarus rising from the dead. He could not do that from miles away. What Jesus knew is that he had to step into the mess, not around the mess, in order to breathe and to bring hope. Okay, all right. So friends, here's the deal. Are are, are we willing to do the same thing? Are we willing to step into messy lives? Lives where you may not know the answer. Don't you love it that that question still lingers in this passage, even at this point in time? The, God, if you would have shown up, Jesus, if you would have been here, this wouldn't have happened. I think he's very content with that question lingering as long as his presence shows up. And you are a carrier of his presence. I've said this before, but I always want us to be a church where we not only don't avoid messy situations, but that we pursue them. I want to seek God in how we can bring hope to people that nobody else are bringing hope to. I want to be the type of church that says, where have they laid him? We're going there. Where's the, where's the dead and the desperate situations that need hope? How do we, how do we bring hope into communities of people that just don't have any gospel influence? How do we bring hope into like the homosexual community? How do we become a church that does that? How do we bring hope to the immigrants in our area? How, how do we become a church that says we're not afraid of that messy situation? We're willing to step into it. How do we bring hope like many people are to women who have experienced abortion? How do we breathe hope into those messy situations? How do we bring hope to the homeless, the downtrodden, the hurt? Man, in my own life, I'm just wrestling with God. God, what situations am I stepping around that you're asking me to step into? Because, hey, here it is, newsflash. Christianity is built around a God who steps into a mess. And you are that mess. And I am that mess. That is the incarnation, friends, is that Jesus Christ leaves worship in heaven, the glory of God, bowing to all the angels and saints, bowing down around the throne, worshiping Him. He clothes Himself in humanity, born as a baby, steps into the mess and the sin and the darkness of this world because He's convinced that there's no darkness that's too dark for the light He brings. There's no hopelessness that's too far gone for the hope that He he breathes and he is able to step into any mess because he knows that he brings more power than that mess could ever bring. And hey, will we be the type of church that says we believe that God has given us that same mission and that same power. We're not stepping around the messes. We are chasing after them. Like people that chase after tornadoes to get a good picture. We want to be part of the messes in the world because we believe that our Jesus is greater 
that he's bigger, that he is stronger. Listen to the way that Paul writes about the incarnation and just Jesus stepping into our mess. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form, God did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He stepped into our sinful, depraved, messed up, world. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is our model. This is our model for ministry in the world. We jump in. We don't do ministry from the outside looking in. We do ministry from the inside looking around. There's a big difference. There's a big difference. And I wonder where Jesus is calling us to go. And I think some of us are with Jesus up to this point. I think a lot of us may be where we go, yeah, I want to see, I really do want to see people and I want to be a carrier of compassion and, and hope in the world. And we might even go as far as to say, yep, I'm with you, Jesus. I'm willing to step into the mess. But look at the way that Jesus steps into the mess. Verse 35, the shortest verse in the whole Bible You may know it. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. I think this is the hardest part for me about stepping into messes. Um, I'm a fixer. Anybody else? So like our, our learning curve when Kelly and I got married was pretty steep. For, by that I mean my learning curve was pretty steep when we got married. So Kelly would come home from work. She's a, she's a teacher. She would come home from work and say, hey, man, there, there's... She wouldn't say, hey, man, but she would say, there's just these problems going on at school and, and there's this issue and that issue and I'm mentally taking notes and then um, over dinner, I sort of roll out a five-point plan for her to solve all those problems. And it's amazing that that was never what she wanted. It's crazy See, she didn't want me to solve the problems. She just wanted me to listen and be there and hear and care. See, here's one of the things I love about Jesus is that Jesus doesn't just heal the pain and the sickness. He enters into the pain and the sickness. He enters into the agony. He doesn't just he doesn't just fix the problem. Because I think he knows that the deepest cry of the hearts of humanity is not that all of the problems would be fixed, but that we would know that there's somebody walking with us in the midst of them. And so he doesn't just stop and say, "Hey, hey, Mary, Martha, settle down." I mean, if you could just see what I'm going to do in five, take your breath away. <laughs> right? I mean, are these, are these wasted tears? I mean, if you know you're going to raise Lazarus from the dead and you're going to 
fix it, quote unquote, and everything's going to be all right then? Aren't these wasted tears? I mean, come on, Jesus, you know what you're going to do. You know that in a few minutes, Lazarus is walking out of that grave. Why in the world would you cry over something you know that you're going to fix? And yet on a very core human level, we all know that the best thing somebody can do for our hearts is to just say, I'm with it. I'm with you in it. I'll, I'll weep with you. I'll cry with you. I'll feel, I will allow myself to feel what you're feeling. Instead of just coming with the, hey, Mary, Martha, haven't you guys read Romans? I mean, I know it wasn't written yet, but a few years, Paul's going to write Romans 8.28, and he's going to say, hey, everything works together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Don't you know that, Mary and Martha? He doesn't have a theological answer. And hey, 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 here's the deal. You don't need to either. That there's some times in life where the best thing that you can do for somebody isn't come in with all the answers. It's just to come in and sit with them. And to feel what they feel. And to maybe cry with them. For the guys in here, that's going to be, that's a, that's a hard one. But hey, if Jesus can do it, so can we. Amen? Oh, two amens. Okay, okay. Man, here's, here's why that's hard for us. Here's the main hang up. Is because for me to really love somebody, I have to let my guard down. I have to let my guard down. I have to be vulnerable. I cannot love somebody and be concerned about my own self-preservation at the same time. I will either preserve myself and my pride or I will love, but I will not do both. But I will not do both. And I love that Jesus is just so transparent as to say, I'll just sit with you and I'll weep with you and I will allow myself to be deeply moved and greatly troubled by the pain that you're feeling, even though I'm moments away from bringing hope. Man, South, will we be the type of church that says we're willing to, to step into the mess and not around it so that we can be people who bring our presence, which is what people really need. And anybody in this room can do that. You don't have to be a theologian to just say to people, I care and I'm willing to enter into your pain. In fact, it may be better that you aren't. To just say, I'm with you. I hear you. I'll cry with you. I'll help you carry that burden, whatever that looks like. But I'm willing to just sit and to be with you and to hopefully be somebody that breathes hope into your life. Look at the way. Look at the way that verse 36 starts to close out this section. It says, So the Jews said 
See how he loved them. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also kept this man from dying? You see, they're they're processing this going, Wait a second. Jesus did a lot of miracles. Why would he then also cry when he could do something about it? Why would he enter in when he could fix and solve? Why why wouldn't he just jump right to the raising of Lazarus from the dead when he did all of this other stuff? But see what they notice. See what they notice in Jesus' entering in, in verse 36. He says, see how he loved them. I don't know about you, But when people walk away from an interaction with me, that would be something that I would want them to say. I'm not as concerned with them saying, man, that Paulson was freaking brilliant. (laughs) You know, or, wow, he just helped me solve all my problems. Here's the deal. When When people walk away from me, above all, I want them to say, He really loved me. He cared. He was present. Because here's the truth of the matter, friends, is that we display knowledge through our solutions, but we display our love through our presence. And what the world needs is people to walk alongside them in the messy times of life, in the times where it just feels like the whole world is falling apart and they do not need somebody to come along and say, here's a five-step task list. If you execute this to perfection, then you'll get out of this problem. They don't need that. What they need is for a world to walk alongside them and say, I'm willing to enter in with you. And isn't that what Jesus does with us? Not just with Lazarus and his sisters, but isn't it what he does with us is that he steps into our pain? Isn't the cross Jesus not only stepping into our pain, but embracing our pain and carrying our pain and redeeming our pain and shouting, this is not the end of the story? I mean, this is a picture of the gospel. It's that Jesus steps in to messed up lives and he weeps with us and he cries with us and he cares about us and he carries our burden and he nails them to the cross of Calvary and says, it is finished. And so you and I have the hope of redemption, the assuredness, That God will turn every pain into deep, abiding, sustaining glory. And that, friends, allows us to be people who say, we'll see you at your worst. You don't have to clean up in order for us to be a church that engages you. Because Lord knows, we didn't clean up before he came for us. We did not, the gospel is not Jesus comes to good lives and adds a nice little accessory to what we have going on. The gospel is that Jesus comes to dead lives and breathes hope. That's the gospel. In our messed up, 
situation. He speaks his love. Will we be the type of church? Will we be the type of people? And maybe it's even just this Easter where we're willing to have an awkward conversation with a neighbor or a family member. Will we be the type of people who don't step around the messes, but we step right into them, believing that our God is powerful and our God brings hope? Hey, you don't need to have all the answers. You just need to be present. And South May, people who walk away from us walk away saying, Wow, they really love me. They really love me. Our knowledge will not transform the world, but you better believe your love will. Jesus, thank you for.